morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Jay is not in action yesterday. I know baseball players need days off. Radio hosts don't need the team to have three off days in an eight-day stretch. Give me games. Elsewhere in baseball, though, uh, there was Blue Jays' relevant action. The Houston Astros beat the Boston Red Sox. And as much as historically you'd like that outcome when you look at the wild card race, that is maybe not the best outcome for the Toronto Blue Jays. Certainly not the best outcome for the Toronto Blue Jays was the Seattle Mariners staying hot and absolutely clobbering the Chicago White Sox. So despite the inaction, the Jays lose half a game on Seattle and Houston, the two teams they are chasing in the wild card in the American League. Those three teams separated by just a game and a half for the two final wild card spots. Tampa just a little extra ahead, Boston just a little extra behind, but that is basically your wild card race. Unless you want to include Texas who uh, Seattle and Houston have almost caught also, but of course one of those teams is going to win the AL West and for whatever reason one team still has to win the American League Central and that will be the Minnesota Twins in all likelihood. Uh we'll see the Guardians this weekend. Jays just Took only two of four against them in one of the lowest scoring series you will ever see. Needs to be better this time around. The Jays are about to embark on arguably the biggest 18-game stretch of their schedule this year. Certainly when the season started, this didn't look like the biggest 18-game stretch. And it's only as big as it is because the Jays have not made the most of opportunities in earlier parts of the schedule, but they're about to play three against the Orioles, which is obviously very important. They trail the Orioles by eight and a half games in the American League East. And if there is going to be, if we're even going to mention the American League East standings from here, the Jays are going to need to take at least two from this series and probably sweep. And then you look ahead and it's five consecutive series against teams that are either the Cleveland Guardians or in last place, in their division. It's the easiest stretch of baseball. The Blue Jays will play all season. And yes, Joe Siddle has hammered this home a bunch. It, the strength of schedule does not matter. If you are not playing good baseball at the time you meet those teams, the Jays have been playing okay baseball. Regardless, this is going to be a stretch of schedule where first with three against Baltimore, it's their last ditch effort to make the American league East actually consideration. And then from there, uh, five series, 15 games against teams, who should allow the Blue Jays to make a bit of a run and insulate themselves in that wildcard race. And if they don't, you're headed for a back half of September where every game is must win and the schedule once again turns more difficult. Jays played a good, not great team on the weekend in the Cincinnati Reds, who sit one game out of a very tight wildcard race in the National League as well. Jays take two of three there. Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca was down there. He joins us now. Ben Nicholson-Smith, vegetarian chili on spaghetti loaded up with cheese. How'd it go? Oh, man. I've done the the veggie skyline uh, option, but I did not. Um, So I have no report to offer back to you here, Blake. That's probably for the best. Uh, I don't you know. I don't know that that would have been great for your stomach. Uh, certainly not great to travel on. Uh, how was Cincinnati though? It was great. You know, it's a nice. Um, I actually thought it was a pretty nice city, and the ballpark was really nice as well. I mean, it's not 
necessarily going to be discussed even you know here in Baltimore, right? Camden Yards, obviously a real uh, classic ballpark, and and there are others that get a bit more hype. But I, I thought that the uh, the Great American Ballpark was really nice, and you know the Jays ended up getting a couple <laughs> big wins there. But really hot, it was really really hot there. Um, but uh, but a, a nice chance to uh, see a park that the Jays last visited nine years ago. Yeah, last visited with uh, some interesting names in the lineup and on the hill uh, last time around. So another thing with the Jays visiting Cincinnati is that as nice as that ballpark is, it's a bit of a joke stadium. It has by far the largest home run factor of any park in all of baseball based on baseball savants, three-year kind of rolling park factors. The Blue Jays hit a bunch of home runs on Sunday after being pretty quiet with the bats uh, Friday and most for the most part Saturday. Um, getting going in that way, five home runs in one game, having another 10-run outburst. We have done this before where the Jays put up 13 against the Red Sox and then put up, I, I think, 11 in, in last Sunday's game. They have had these individual outbursts. Um, do, you, do you subscribe at all to you know, a benefit of a couple of those fly balls scraping their way over the fence and guys getting to see it and, you know, everyone except for Matt Chapman contributing on Sunday? I think it's always a good thing. I think that any time that you hit five home runs, uh, and it's still a major league park. I mean, I, I know it's, you know, it definitely not, uh, it, it's pretty exceptional along with some parks like Coors Field, but even Coors Field is maybe more of an offense park and not as much of a home run first park. Um, but hey, it's it's in the major leagues. It counts. Um, they're facing major league pitching. Is a pretty like the Reds are interesting, right? Because mm -hmm. they are they are loaded with talent, as you know, Blake. And you know, there's there's so much on that roster when it comes to promise and just raw ability from guys like Noel V. Marte and Ellie De La Cruz and Steer. And it is it is a stacked team, but they are raw. They make a lot of mistakes, and so it's just an interesting experience overall. But you know, to get back to the point about home runs. This is a, it's always good. It's major league pitching. It's major league ballpark. They count. It's always a good thing. Now, I still look at this Blue Jays team and I'm, I'm still kind of awestruck at how little power they have. And, you know, it's, it's really, you know, you look at, it wasn't George Springer supposed to be hitting 35 home runs, <laughs> you know, for, for this team. Like he's got, he's got 15, I think. I mean, it's, and, and I'm not trying to pick on one, one guy and George Springer has been doing better lately, but you know, Vlad Jr., he was supposed to be hitting 40. You know, Matt Chapman was supposed to be hitting 30. Dalton Varsha was supposed to be hitting 25 or 30. Like, it is really light on power. Alejandro Kirk, your silver slugger winner at catcher last year, he's got six bombs. That's a weekend for some guys. Like, it's, it's still a good team. It's still a good baseball team. They can still score enough runs. But it is, it is remarkable how little power they have. And this might be a team that ends the year with you know, a team home run leader with 23 or 24 home runs. Um, and that's that's pretty unusual. You don't see a lot of teams make the playoffs with that kind of uh, construction. And it it does, you know, put into, put into highlight that, you know, we've spent a lot of time this year talking about their inability to hit with runners in scoring position. And that is certainly a factor in the big gap between, say, their weighted runs created plus and their runs per game it is, hey, you're not executing in big spots. Your stats are coming a little bit in lower leverage situations. We've seen that runners in scoring position numbers start to normalize a little bit. Uh, the issue's been more of like getting runners in scoring position in the first place. But yeah, when you are, you know, 
you're sitting in the middle of the league. I believe they're tied with Baltimore for 15th in total home runs. Uh, that is a, a tough way to go, especially when a lot of the teams ahead of you and that you're jockeying with can win games via the long ball. Um, I, I guess, you know, we could dig into, you know, the expected stats and things like that and things look slightly rosier, but not significantly. So what do you make of the fact that the Jays have underperformed as a power hitting team? And, and like, I, do we have to change our expectations from here for a guy like Springer, Varsho, Chapman, Vlad, I, I, Bo's, you know, Bo leads this team in home runs still, despite the, the missed time. And, and Danny Jansen has 15 and 78 games, but otherwise there's a, there's a bit of a feeling with, with a handful of these guys that this is maybe who they are for the season. Yeah, I think that's kind of how I look at it. Um, I'm certainly not expecting, you know, in the course of September for someone to go out and hit 10 home runs and just carry the offense. And maybe earlier in the season, I would have been more likely to believe that that was a possibility. Just looking at the names in this lineup, um, I I think, and, you know, there's so much that we could get to with Vlad Jr. I, I think with him, as we move ahead beyond this year, his future is still so bright. He's still such a talented hitter. Uh, you know, so let's let's not let's not let this current discussion overshadow what he can be for this franchise. But in this moment, it's clear that he's not accessing his full power potential. And I nor am I expecting George Springer to to be a, a massive power threat the way he was with the Houston Astros. And there's some big picture considerations there too for a guy who's now uh, you know entering his mid 30s and what that looks like. But I, you know, history would tell us the last few years would tell us that he's probably more of a 25 homer guy. Um, and then, yeah, you look up and down the lineup, they just don't have, and really Vlad Jr. was the only player on this team last year who got more than 30 homers with his with his 32. So even last year, um, you know, may, I'm not sure if it fully landed or resonated with us, but this team at that point in time wasn't a big power hitting team either. So I think that now we're starting to really have that reality set in. Yeah, it was a bit of a misnomer last year that they did all their damage by the home run and they were a little too boomer bust. They were boomer bust at some points, but that is the nature of being a good, not elite offense. But they were seventh in home runs. And then they obviously lost uh, some home run punch and it is working out on the run prevention side with the best CRA in baseball. But yeah, they are not scoring runs at a rate that they need to. Um, with respect to the runners and scoring position stuff, and I want to... There is a Davis Schneider, Paul DeYoung factor to this too that we'll circle back to. But um, on the runners and scoring position front, the numbers have started to turn around a little bit in August. They're, they're now kind of below average rather than bottom of the league in that regard. Um, but I'm, I wonder, Ben, what you made of Bo Bichette's comments. Um, first of all, when he was on the IL talking to Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez about you know guys needing to better stick to their game plan in those situations, whether it's identifying a pitch or identifying a, an area of the strike zone to attack. And then his comments when he came back off the IL about them being fearless. Uh, what, what does that mean to you offensively? Yeah, you know, I didn't hear his comments with Dan and Buck, um, but I was there uh, in the dugout the other day when when um, he was talking to us about about wanting to be fearless. So I can speak to that probably a little better. And I think that um, when it comes to being fearless offensively, I, I think it's it probably applies defensively too, um, where it's basically you know the the mindset of of just going out there and thinking about the good things that can happen and not thinking about the bad things that might happen if if you don't execute to the to the peak of your ability 
Um, you know, it's something that John Gibbons would talk about with respect to Josh Donaldson a lot. And when Donaldson was in his MVP year in 2015, I remember John Gibbons saying, Josh Donaldson is just not afraid to fail. He's just not afraid to fail. He's going up there and if, if he strikes out, he strikes out, but he's not afraid to fail. And I think that that was an apt description of Donaldson at the time, certainly applied to others on that team, including Jose Bautista. Um, I think we'd say that about Marcus Stroman. I think we'd say that about a lot of players on that ball club. Um, and I think we'd say that about Bo. Now, I don't think that, you know, the the Blue Jays as a collective are are sitting there consciously thinking they're going to fail. I think these these nuances mentally are really tough to to pin down, especially from the outside. Um, so I, I'm not... I'm not going to sit here and say that he was aiming that at someone or aiming that at the collective, but it's interesting. And I do think that, I think we would all say that, right? In any walk of life, whatever you're doing, you want to go up there not thinking about the worst case scenario. You want to go up there thinking, what's what can go right? What would this look like if I go right? And if if everything kind of falls into place, and that probably puts anyone in a better mindset to produce and and to you know reach their best potential. So I, I think what Bo says is kind of common sense. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And at the same time, it's probably easier said than done because if you're one of these players who's been having a down season, like a Dalton Varsho, for instance, or an Alejandro Kirk, well, maybe it's hard to access that really positive mindset. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're Alejandro Kirk and you're the coaching staff there, you can at least be in his ear about the good things he's done defensively. Um, you know, he grades out pretty well there. But yeah, you you can't... Look, guys know their stats and they're going to look and see a 600-ish OPS as well. Uh, Dalton Varsho starting to come around lately a little bit, which is uh, is nice. Someone who has not come around lately, uh, posting about a 650 OPS over his last 21 games, mirrored in the worst 81 game half season stretch since his rookie season in 2019 is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Um, I We had Mike Petriello on the show yesterday of MLB.com. He had a, a very large piece at MLB.com investigating 11 different theories about what could be at the root cause of Vlad having... An offensive season where he's been 15% better than a league average hitter, but he's a first baseman. He is not adding a ton of value with his legs or with his glove this year. He is not, I mean, he's Vladimir Guerrero Jr. 15% above average is not anywhere near the expectations. Uh, Ben, I know you got a chance to read Mike Petriello's piece. Uh, What did you make of it? Do you have any leading theories having gone through Mike's top 11 or so? It, yeah, it was a really good piece, really good piece in there. And it's uh, addressing some of the questions that people like you and me and and I'm sure tons of people listening um, have been wondering all season. I don't think there's a, a single reason for it. Um, but man, when I look at Vlad Jr., obviously it hasn't been going great. Um, this hasn't been a great season for him. Um at the same time, and we'll see if he plays today, he's dealing with the middle finger uh, soreness there. Um, I expect he'll be in there, just knowing Vlad Jr. You know, I, I think I, I think he's going to be in there today. We will see. Um, but um, I just, I really think that there is a good hitter in there for the rest of this year. And I think there's a great hitter in there for 24 and beyond. And going from good to great might require some, um, you know, off-season work, off-season adjustments, whatever the case. Um, but I, I still think for the rest of this season, he's going to be better than what he's been. I really do. Because even if he just keeps making the same swing decisions, which haven't been perfect, we all know that. He, we've all seen him chase sliders off the plate. But even if he makes the same swing decisions and the same contact, 
this, he's hitting rockets. Like those balls are going to land more than they have so far. So that will translate into better numbers. And so even if he's not a 40 homer guy, he can be, you know, maybe he's, he's still a 280 hitter in my mind who can hit a ton of doubles, draw a decent amount of walks. He's still going to be a really good hitter. So I think even this year, even like today, when I, when I go to the park tonight, I'm expecting Vlad Jr. to be a really good hitter, and I think his numbers undersell what he's been able to do at the plate this year. Well, the Jays have to hope that. We have to hope that because, you know, 775 OPS is uh, fine for a lot of guys and even nice at some positions in the current game. But if you are a first baseman slash DH and you are, you know, one of the core parts of the middle of this order, you, you go as your stars go. And that's not entirely, that's not as true in baseball as it is in other sports, but you look at what the Seattle Mariners have done lately. Well, they have basically an identical ERA and WRC plus to the blue Jays over the last 30 days. And they've won seven extra games. And it has to feel like at least a little bit of that is Julio Rodriguez is just uh, putting the hurt on everyone. Ben, I, I know you watch a lot of out of market baseball. When you look at the wild card race in the American League right now, um, what do you make of this run? The Mariners are on, and you know Houston not really taking a step back, other than getting swept by the Mariners. But this is a a really tight race now, and, and with more at least one extra team, if you want to consider Texas, maybe two extra teams uh, more than maybe we anticipated a couple weeks ago. It's going to be really interesting, and it's I think you look at Houston and and Seattle. These are two really good teams, right? Like we're still in this early, early years, just the second year of this expanded playoff format. And and just because you have six teams per league in really doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get in because of what you alluded to off the top with, you know, the twins being able to make it in. So as it stands now, you have three really good teams in the AL East. You have three really good teams in the AL West. And that creates a, a lot of competition, a lot of tension because, someone's going to have to miss out. And, you know, that's that's pretty interesting when you think about the Blue Jays or the Astros or the Mariners. One of those teams is not going to make it um, unless it's the Rangers, which is also a good team. So it's it's setting Oh, we may have... Oh, are you back, Ben? You got me? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, what stood out to me most last night following that Mariners-White Sox game was just Luis Castillo throwing 47 consecutive fastballs <laughs> to end his start. What a what an incredible flex on the Chicago White Sox saying, I'm throwing 97 every single time. Hit it if you can. And they couldn't hit it. Unbelievable. I mean, that is... That's great. But, you know, the Jays, anytime we're talking about pitching, like we should, we probably don't say this enough. The Blue Jays pitching has been unbelievable. Starting pitching, bullpen. If they get to the playoffs, watch out. The Blue Jays pitching staff could do some damage. You get a few home runs from a Brandon Belt here or a Bobachette there. They could do damage. So, you know, as much we spend a lot of time talking about what has gone wrong for this Blue Jays team, and, and rightfully so. They are out of a playoff spot. They have tons of work to do. They are not close to where they need to be. But, Let's not forget that this is a really good pitching staff that Jays have as well. It is a really good pitching staff. It's a pitching staff that has managed to do this in large part because of Yusei Kikuchi taking a step up, the work of the bullpen, Hyunjin Ryu now returning. Uh, they've been able to do it without Alec Manoa. Ben, I, I know people are curious about kind of what the heck's going on with Manoa right now. Last Tuesday, we both sat in John Schneider's room and he said the plan was for him to start someday that week in Buffalo, uh, you asked the follow-up about that of John Schneider this Saturday, and Alec Manoa is still in Toronto with a bit of a vague uh, 
vague explanation of exactly what the situation is right now. Uh, what were you able to pick up from John Schneider about that on the weekend? And what do you make of the current Alec Manoa situation? Well, it's it's unusual, that's for sure, um, because it has now been 12 days since Manoa pitched um, professionally. And that's just rare, you know, for a pitcher who's not dealing with an injury. Normally, they would be in there. Um, he would have made a couple starts by now in some capacity. And clearly, at the big league level, they're fine in the rotation. It's remarkable, but they are fine. Ryu has been really good. We saw that again on Sunday. And so... Um, that logically leaves Manoa at AAA. And so as of Saturday, um, Manoa was still in Toronto. Um, there were discussions as to what it would look like for him to rejoin that Buffalo rotation and start making some um, appearances at AAA. As of, that, uh, as of this past weekend, they had not finalized that. Um, so today, we will get the chance to talk to John Schneider again and to others around the the Jays. The timing of yesterday's off day, not really ideal on that front. But um, today, definitely my intention is to <laughs> learn a little bit more about Manoa and what they plan for um, for him here because, you know, you never know. If someone ends up pulling a hamstring, like you're going to need him. So it's, it's actually a pretty significant question for this ball club. Yeah, and like I, I would completely understand if they were like, hey, the best thing for Alec Manoa for 2024 is we're going to shut him down, maybe even a phantom injury, so a 40-man spot opens up or something like that. But yeah, there is still a month plus of baseball to go through, and you've got the odd off day sprinkled in there, but it's potent, like there is a good chance, especially if you're trying to take care of your top arms down the stretch, that you need a guy, again, it's a little odd for him to uh, to not be throwing right now, or at least not throwing in-game action. Uh, so, Ben, we'll look forward to your updates from that pregame. Uh, the other thing that caught us a bit off guard on the weekend, or, or at least speaking for myself, was that with Bo Bichette being activated on Saturday, rather than David Schneider going down or Santiago Espinal going down uh, or anyone else with options, it was Paul DeYoung getting designated for assignment. Now, purely on merit, that made sense. He was very, very bad at a Socrates Brito level for the Blue Jays in his short window there. Uh, however, this front office talks so much about um, flexibility and roster management and keeping every option open and things like that. Uh, were you surprised to see DeYoung get DFA'd versus, you know, hey, two weeks of David Schneider being back down there, but being down there before he's back up? Uh, I wouldn't say I was surprised just because he had really just struggled so much offensively and given them zero offensively. And, you know, as, as much as he was brought here mostly for the glove, he still has to go out there and get the occasional hit against major league pitching. And he just wasn't able to do that. So, um, I, yeah, I wasn't that surprised. I think that, you know, it was, I, I think at this point in the season, you have to be running something closer to a meritocracy and you can't be worried about, uh, guys who might be out of options or preserving, you know, the depth of some extra catcher in the way that you might, uh, at the end of spring training in the way that you might in May it's win time and the blue Jays, you know, they're one game back in the race, but it's essentially two games back because the Mariners have the tie break on them. So they have ground to make up and they do not have a lot of time. It's going to go by really quickly. They need to gain ground. And so they need the best bats, the best players possible. And Davis Schneider is someone who you could legitimately put in there as a pinch hitter. If it's Dalton Varsho late in the game, you want to, you want to avoid a left on left matchup, or you just want a better power matchup. Then, 
you bring in Davis Schneider and he has a clear role. And, and we saw that on Saturday mm-hmm. with the home run um, that allowed the Blue Jays to, to win a one-run game. So I, I think that, uh, you know, you could have also made a case for Espinal if you wanted to go down the preserve the depth uh, uh, path as much as possible. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, I wasn't surprised. And this is the time of year where you just got to go with the guys who are performing best. You do. And, and that's why Manoa was optioned to AAA as well. I just, I, I thought maybe they'd string it out a, a little bit longer just to keep one extra option open for September. Uh, Paul DeYoung, by the way, enough service time that he can reject being outrighted to AAA and elect free agency where the Jays would then be on the hook for, I think about a million dollars left prorated over the, the course of, of the final season, but his uh, buyout for next year was covered by the Cardinals. So no concern there. Uh, So no Paul DeYoung, no Alec Manoa, but the Jays will be otherwise in good shape as they take on the Orioles starting tonight. Yusei Kikuchi, Kevin Gosman, Jose Barrios. Uh, It's a little strange to say after the way things went for two of those three guys last year, Ben, but if this is how things lined up for a wild card series, some of this is opponent dependent, but you'd have to feel pretty good about that being the three guys you're rolling out, right? Absolutely. I I think, I mean, I don't know where you land on this. To me, that might be the best case scenario at this point. Um, The only, the only team it would worry me against a little bit is where the Astros are so righty heavy and righty pull power heavy. Maybe you like Bassett better than Kikuchi in that specific matchup. But that's, uh, I mean, anyway, especially a team like the Orioles, that's lefty heavy in a ballpark where righties don't hit for power well. Uh, Kikuchi makes all the sense in the world to me in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think that at this point, you just have to be so thrilled with what Kikuchi and Barrios have been able to do. Uh, Gosman, obviously, his resume and his his numbers speak for themselves. Um, but, you know, Barrios, I think at this point, has really erased the the questions that surrounded him last year. His command has been so much better. He's been locating better at the bottom of the zone. Um, and he never lost the life on his pitches last year. It was just they were placed in the wrong spots. So, you know, with that improved command, you, you know, you've got a great pitcher in Barrios, a really good number two starter for the Jays. And then Kikuchi's been tremendous. It's It's been honestly one of the best, maybe the best story of the season for this for this team. And so... Going up against Baltimore, I mean, let's face it, it's even if they sweep their five and a half backs, the American League East is very much a long shot, but it's still the last really good team you're going to face for a few weeks. You want to bank as many wins as you can. You, like I said before, you're so close to the Mariners and, and to the other AL West teams, you can't afford to slip. And so this is where guys like Kikuchi are so important. And I should note too, you know, a game like tonight, if Kikuchi doesn't have it for whatever reason, then you really have to be prepared to go to your bullpen early because the bullpen has been very well rested the last little while. This is a chance where you actually can push them. And I know there's a limit to that, but today is one of those days where you can do it if you need to. Yeah, you've had three off days in the last eight. You got Trevor Richards back. Bowden Francis ate three innings for you uh, on on Sunday. Your, your bullpen's in pretty good shape here, and it's not you're not headed into another 17-game stretch. It's nine games before your next off day. I, I think you're right that you've got to, uh, you've got to be Quick, if you need to be there. Little trivia for you, Ben. Uh, who was the last Blue Jay to get a three-out save before uh, Bowden Francis did it on Sunday? A three-inning save? Yes, three-inning save. Sorry, three-out save would be Jordan Romano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, three-inning save. That's a good... Uh, give me a hint. He's currently on the roster. 
He's currently on the roster. Uh, I'll give you a better hint. He's starting uh, tonight. No way. Yeah. Wow. Kikuchi did it last September. Wow. I, I That just slipped my mind completely. That's yeah. a good one. Before that, you got to go to like Tommy Malone and Ross Stripling. And uh, yeah, there are some, uh, some fun ones in there if you dig around in the history of three-inning uh, saves. Dwayne Ward did it 16 times. Kind of blew my mind when I saw that. Wow. That's a true closer. You do that, like that's like, that's some Rolaids Relief Award material. Yeah. Uh, no, that is a non-brand specific uh, Antacid Award winning. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not giving away the free promotion here. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith, you're down in Baltimore uh, for these three. Uh, have a good time, man. I appreciate you taking the time out this morning. Yeah, should be fun. Thanks, Blake. Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Keep an eye on his Twitter and his articles at Sportsnet.ca. Of course, Uh, we should get a flurry of updates from John Schneider before the game. What's going on with Alec Manoa? What are the next steps for Chad Green, who's now thrown nine uh, rehab innings without an earned run, without a walk, pretty good strikeout numbers, uh, one unearned run mixed in there. And the fastball velocity is still sitting like 94.3 to 94.5 on average. It seems like that's maybe where it's going to top out unless he gets a little extra juice uh, when he comes back from the, I guess, just extra intensity and adrenaline of a, of a major league game. Um, get an update there. Get an update on Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who left Sunday's game with left middle finger discomfort, something he'd been dealing with prior to that game as well. Uh, it's Yusei Kikuchi, Grayson Rodriguez tonight. Kevin Gosman against Jack Flaherty on Wednesday and Jose Brios against Dean Kramer on Thursday. We'll continue to tee that one up throughout the show. We've got Melanie Newman coming on around 1130. I will also talk to Greg Goldstein of Baseball Perspectives. We'll kind of whip around Major League Baseball at 11. Uh, Coming up after the break, we'll be joined by Jeff Ponce of Baseball America. Had a great chat with him a couple weeks ago after his visit to the Blue Jays. Uh, complex down in Dunedin. He's also based close to New Hampshire, so we'll get a look at some of the double-A guys. There's also just been a ton of interesting prospect stuff around baseball, including new farm system rankings from Baseball America. One note before we take the break, Jeff Passan of ESPN reporting that Major League Baseball has placed Wander Franco on administrative leave as the league and authorities in the Dominican Republic uh, continue to investigate Franco's alleged relationship with underage girls. Uh, his administration leave is now official through the MLB and MLBPA, uh, and he is on leave until further notice. Um, you know, as a procedural note, administrative leave is not technically disciplinary Franco continues to be paid and accrue service time while on there. But this is the mechanism that the league and the union have available to them as they continue to investigate that situation. Um, We'll keep an eye on that situation over the coming weeks. Of course, we'll take a break right now. Talk to Jeff Ponce of baseball America on the other side as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports at radio network and sports at three sixty. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's the Ballad of Mona Lisa by Panic at the Disco. I chose that one because our next guest has suggested that a musician, some enterprising artist, should release an entire album of the Ballad of X, and they're just failed 
prospects. Ballads for Failed Prospects, just also a good band name or album name. Jeff Ponce of Baseball America joins us now. Jeff, who is your failed prospect of choice? Like if they give you one of the ballads on the album, who's who's the failed prospect you feel most passionately about wanna wanna write a heartbreaking song for? I think it, it, it would have to, it would have to be either Willie Calvin or uh, AJ Reed, who is a first base prospect for the uh, Astros many years ago. That was a top ten prospect, and early on when I started doing this, uh, had him ranked very highly, and he had pretty much no major league career. And I don't think I've had uh, too many misses on par with that. So it would probably be AJ Reed or, or Willie Calhoun, who was a player when he was initially coming up with the Rangers and the Dodgers. I was fairly high on. Well, look, there's always time for AJ Reed. DJ Stewart's now finally becoming a player again. So uh, you got uh, he homered again yesterday. So uh, there's still time. I, I wonder though, is the the lesson from Reed and maybe Spencer Torkelson being as hot as he is lately uh, kills my point here. But hard to be a first base prospect, right? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it was the lesson that I learned years ago that you know when you don't have a lot of twitch um, or a lot of bat speed. And that was kind of the issue with AJ Reed is he never had the level of bat speed that I think uh, you need to be successful in major leagues against, you know, increasing velocity. It seems like every season. So um, yeah, I think that was the lesson there, but also, you know, as you fall further down the defensive spectrum, you really got to hit because, you know, when you're talking about first base defense, it's not something that's valued very highly. So you got to be able to uh, hit for average, get on base, and hit for power, and you really got to be able to do all three to be successful at that position. Well, while we're talking about that position, Jeff, we, we talked to you a couple weeks ago after you'd done your, your time down in the Dunedin complex, checking out the Jays' uh, FCL team and their single-A team, and you're based near New Hampshire, so we're going to kick some Fisher Cats stuff at you. But Spencer Horwitz at AAA, and you would have seen a little bit of him with the Fisher Cats uh, last year, is... Yep. In a weird spot, prospect-wise, almost 26 years old. He's a first baseman slash DH. They've, they've tried to play him at second and in left field a little bit. Uh, you know, walk rate higher than strikeout rate, awesome. But does a guy like that, like at some point, he just has to show more power than he's been able to show in the minor leagues to, to really be on the radar? Yeah, and I think, you know, um, it's pretty easy to compare him to somebody who's kind of rapidly been moving toward him and then eventually jumped him over the last couple of months just within the Blue Jays rankings, and that's Davis Schneider. And similar players, um, in terms of digging into the analytics and, and underlying stats, do a lot of that, particularly with hitters, um, and sort of have benchmarks I look at when it comes to a certain threshold of contact rate, we'll say 70% or above, players with uh, a 30% or lower chase rate, and then, you know, in a 90th percentile, so the average of the top 10% of your batted balls exit velocities over 104. And Schneider and Horowitz are actually two guys that showed up on those searches the last two years. Uh, Vinny Capra is another guy that the Blue Jays have had that falls kind of within that range. Damiano, uh, Paul Maggiani is another guy that falls within that range. The Blue Jays kind of have this, like, these, these underrated guys that they find in the later rounds of drafts uh, and Horowitz and Schneider and, and, and Paul Mangiani and these guys all fall into that category that have really good underlying plate skills. Um, maybe aren't the best athletes, maybe don't have a ton of projection, 
but they're guys that seem to learn how to hit for some power in the minors. We've seen a lot more of that from Schneider than we have from Horowitz, and I think that's the, ultimately the separating factor. We talk about these guys that are really corner profiles, you know, so maybe they can play some second, maybe they can play some left field, but primarily they're really first baseman DH types where it's a bat-driven profile. You really got to be able to hit. You got to be able to work counts, get on base, um, you know, hit for some contact, not get beat in the zone consistently, and hit for power. And Horowitz has great plate skills. Uh, he really doesn't chase. He gets on base at a pretty high rate, has throughout his professional career. He doesn't miss in zone really almost ever. His bat-to-ball skills are really good. Just he's such a line-drive hitter and really lacks sort of over-the-fence thump. And, you know, I think it's similar to another prospect within this organization that went a little bit higher in the draft in 2022, and that's Alan Roden, who's now up at, at AA. Great plate skills. There's probably some questions about the power. He has less questions in his defensive profile because he is a pretty good athlete and a pretty good corner outfielder. Um, so unlike those guys, he has less defensive questions. But I will say I think it's one of the underrated strengths in this Blue Jays system is they sort of find these guys in later rounds that have really good plate skills and maybe just have you know an, an off-the-beaten-path sort of uh, background. Schneider obviously was a prep guy. Horowitz a little bit older college guy. So... Um, you know, they come, to, they come in all shapes and sizes. Are any of these guys going to be superstars? Probably not. Um, but I do think that they're all, you know, maybe second division regulars. So Horowitz, for me, probably needs a trade. Um, he's in a, a bad team, you know, a bottom five team, the Royals, the Athletics. I think there's an opportunity there for, you know, maybe him to sneak in. But he's with a contending team that has a pretty stacked lineup. Yeah, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is probably not going anywhere unless uh, his sore middle finger is really, really, really sore uh, right now. You mentioned yeah. Alan Roden. We talked about him last time, but he has stayed hot. He has a 158 WRC plus right now at Double A, which is even higher than what he posted in High A Vancouver. So he's cooking. Um, Jeff, I'm, I wonder mm -hmm. philosophically, the way you just laid out what the Blue Jays look for makes some sense to me. You get the guys who have the plate discipline and plate approach stuff and you bet on them either finding power or you being able to teach them power. That, to me, is a high-floor strategy. You're probably not going to get the ceiling, but you're, you're valuing the skills that are maybe harder to teach, um, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, an organization that has guys like a bunch of Arelvis Martinez's where there's a ton of power potential, but you don't know if their approach is ever going to be refined enough. That is a higher ceiling prospect, but a lower floor. Now the Jays do have a Relvis Martinez, but in the latest baseball America um, organizational rankings, which just came out last week, the Blue Jays graded 25th. And even though you guys at Baseball America are pretty optimistic about a number of guys in the organization, the explanation for why they're 25th is kind of what you just said. There are a lot of guys who project as second division regulars, but maybe not top end starters a lot of guys who are bench pieces and good relievers um what do you how do you feel about that you know philosophically especially if you're a team like the blue jays that anticipates being in a contention window for a while here yeah and i think you know they did a good job this year in terms of you know arjun namalo looks like a very strong high upside pick i think he's more in that or elvis martinez mold um, where he's really going to rake as a, as a young player. There's maybe some swing and miss concerns, but I do think in a similar vein to Martinez, he'll be a guy that 
develops into, um, you know, an on-base guy, which we've seen Orelvis do this year. We've really seen him, you know, in, in very much improve his swing decisions. Having seen a lot of him over the, the first half of the season, I was really impressed. Even when he wasn't going well in terms of the numbers over that first, we'll say, 15-game slump or whatever, um, you know, I thought that the, the organization did a good job of, and I think they do this across the board, of really refining plate skills, um, approach. They have a lot of guys that they sign in the international market that are sort of twitchy, undersized shortstops with good bats of ball skills. Um, but I think, you know, when they, when they approach the international market and the draft the way they do, you tend not to hit a lot of home runs. You hit a lot of singles. You hit a lot of doubles, maybe. Um, but you don't have that big upside. And I think we've seen some of that um, with the, the type of pitching they target. Um, they've had a few that, that have obviously hit uh, with Ricky Tiedemann. You know, um, Barrier has been injured for most of the year. You know, Kendry Rojas, I think, is an interesting arm, but still, um, you know, young, doesn't throw that hard. So the questions are sort of, you know, will he grow into more stuff and more command? And you're kind of looking to do two things at the same time. I just think they lack a lot of sort of firepower. And, you know, you look within the division and you look at, at the Orioles where, you know, the Orioles have close to 10 players and I think have had 10 players at points in the season in the top 100 prospects. They're a very deep system. They were able to make trades at the deadline, um, not in huge swaps, but they were able to trade from some of that, we'll say, depth in the, the 10 to 20 range and really – after the draft, replace a lot of those guys um, with some high upside players. And, you know, I think some of it is, yeah, the Blue Jays have done a good job in the later rounds and gotten great value. Some of those middle round picks really haven't worked out. Um, the times that they have gone for higher upside guys like a Dustin Brown, uh, someone along those lines, they really haven't panned out. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is is you've had injuries to a lot of the top pitchers this year in, in the organization with, you know, Tiedemann and, and Barriera, um, you know, Addison Barger, who looked like he was really breaking out in 2022, is taking a little bit of a step back this year in 2023. Um, so there's just there's just some questions overall, and I think that, you know, um, Yasvara Zulueta not, not taking a big step forward. He had a lot of early picks last year um, in the 2022 draft among the top 100 picks. Not a lot of those guys have really panned out. Um, Kate Dowdy hasn't had a great season. Um, Josh Kasevich hasn't really had a very good season. Um, so you start to look, you know, Tucker Tolman hasn't been great. He's really tumbled down our rankings as well. So you sort of look at some of those players and, and some of the guys that broke out last year that haven't really, you know, recaptured the magic. Gabriel Martinez, I'm looking at you. <laughs> um, it's sort of, it's sort of tough, you know, um, so I think that they had an opportunity this year as some of these players have taken a big step forward. Um, you know, Zuluetta shows that he can start or at least can come out of the bullpen and consistently throw strikes. I think he would have been up in Toronto now. Um, so with sort of that lack of step forwards with a lot of guys who broke out or popped up last year, I think it's sort of tough for the Davis Schneiders and, or Elvis Martinez and some of those guys to balance the rest of it. Um, you know, they've also made some trades. Um, you know, Nick Frosta would look pretty good in the <laughs> system right now. Um, trading away some, some good breakouts in, in Semmer Bursi and, and Klaffenstein um, certainly hurt sort of the middle of this, this uh, uh, organization top 32. And, you know, I think that 
had some of those deals not been made, we might be looking at a system that's more like 15 to 20 than 20 to 25, 25 to 30. Um, but they are there sort of in the bottom of the, of the league right now. But we'll see. We'll see how the draft next year goes and how some of those guys progress in the offseason. Yeah, and we'll also see how they balance or, or how those risk trade-offs go with trading prospects for help now because uh, you are surrounded by teams in the American League East that have good systems. Uh, the Orioles, Red Sox, and Rays ranking first, fifth, and eighth, respectively, in the latest Baseball America organization rankings. Uh, Jeff, wanted your take on some things we're seeing around Major League Baseball outside of Toronto with prospects. We saw Nolan Shawnuel uh, make his major league debut on the weekend for the angels just a couple weeks after being drafted the fastest position player to the majors in over 35 years we saw noel v Marte and mason win both make their debuts last week at just age 21 uh dylan cruz who was uh, a first round pick a couple weeks ago is already up to double a uh, what do you make of how aggressive some teams seem to be right now with pos- young position player prospects yeah, it's it's outrageous, and I think if um, <laughs> the best example I didn't even mention, which is Ethan Salas, who's 17 years old, entered entered the season as a 16 year old at a full season level at Low A, it's now been promoted to Double A by the Padres. So he's going to be the youngest. Uh, and he uh, just turned AA. 17. Just turned 17. Yeah, like June. <laughs> he skipped the complex altogether. This is a guy that signed out of the international market um, back in um uh, january so i mean this guy has not even been in professional baseball for nine months (laughs) he's already up to double a um he does have a pretty advanced background i don't think people necessarily recognize that um though he's signed as an international player he was born in kissimmee florida and his father was a trainer of um international prospects so guy that kind of moved around um grew up a little bit differently than you know your guy that grows up in uh, a village in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or someone like that um this is a guy that was maybe a little bit more worldly and was around players and clubhouses and baseball his entire life uh, his entire existence was around it. his brother uh, Jose Salas is actually was a Marlins prospect was traded this offseason now in the twin system so you look at some of these things it's like all right well this guy Maybe it's as far as defense. I mean, he was in major league spring training games, catching major league pitches. Uh, He's very advanced behind the plate. Um, It's pretty remarkable, but I think part of it too, when you look at a Shanuel, you look at um, Zach Neto, if you look at what the Atlanta Braves have done in recent years with with Michael Harris, we answered that 2022. We did not think Michael Harris was going to be up in the major leagues at any point in the season, let alone, in the first half, um, Von Grisham was another one that jumped up from a ball all the way up to the major leagues. And I think we've seen for the most part, a lot of success with some of these more advanced players. Um, I think teams know what they're doing. Shanuel's a unique case because he's a very advanced from a plate skills perspective. He doesn't swing and miss very often. He walks at a very high rate, um, but there's not a lot of power. In fact, you know, the brand name and the packaging might be a little bit less flashy, kind of similar to Spencer Horowitz in terms of the type of player he is. Horowitz actually has more power than Shanuel does. He's older than Shanuel, so some of it's more, more actualized. But it was something that I wrote about. I wrote an article the day that Shanuel was called it a few hours afterwards, still up on Baseball America. And I talked about the historical perspective. I talked about this trend um, with the Angels, who have really been at the forefront of it, as funny as that sounds, you know, to, to, to call them sort of forward-thinking or aggressive. Hmm. But... They've been aggressive with assigning a lot of prospects almost out of the draft to 
double-A Rocket City. And, you know, they've really skipped over the high-level Tri-City, which is a tough place to play. Um, and they've really jumped over Salt Lake City, which is a very tough place to pitch. You've seen guys like Chase Silseth come up last year. Victor uh, Medeiros came up this year, um, almost right out of the draft. Neto, who we talked about, and and Ben Joyce uh, prior to getting hurt. So they've done this in a consistent pattern. You know, I, I don't know if it's the best development tactic, um, but it depends. I think from team to team, where your best coordinators, where your best facilities are, typically at the major league level. Your best coaching is typically at the major league level. We do see, I think particularly on the pitching side, a lot of guys take that step forward after really struggling in the major leagues. And we can even go back to a guy like Clayton Kershaw. His first season was pretty bad. You get adjusted to major league hitters. You get adjusted to the riggers. It's very different pitching um, in the minors versus pitching in the majors every day, excuse me, every five days, having to go. I think hitters, we see adjustments made a little bit quicker, but they tend to have more experience in terms of playing every day, facing all different types of players, situations, as hitters in the minor leagues. So I, I don't know how it's going to work for a player like Samuel who does have a particular skill that really needs to be refined. Um, but he's in a good lineup spot. He's going to be able to just kind of get on base. You know, if he gets on base at <laughs> – <laughs> a 400% clip like he has for most of his, his, his life. Um, he's going to score a lot of runs with Shohei Otani and some of those guys behind him. So it's kind of interesting. You know, we got to see how it works. I think we've seen with pitchers, sometimes it can work initially. They get figured out the second time through the league. Some of those guys struggle. You know, we've certainly seen it with some of these Dodgers pitchers, like an Emmett Sheehan, for example, you know, comes up, has a lot of initial success, then really starts to struggle and comes back. So, it's tough. I think it's a case-by-case basis. Uh, I do, for the, the pitching side of things, I really like teams getting more aggressive with some of these pitchers. I think there's just, you know, just so many BBs in, you know, in the rifle, right? So um, it's one of those things where you really need to um, be able to get those guys up when they're at their best. And I think too often we've seen a lot of pitchers who wasted some of their best years in AAA or AA when really they should have been up in the major leagues. And we've had some sad stories with some of those cases, like a Brent Honeywell who really pitched his way to the majors um, and got injured and has never really been the same and has had a string of, of injuries. And, you know, maybe that doesn't happen if, if he gets called up by the Rays, you know, whatever, five, six years ago and doesn't have to go down this path. Um, so I do think it's good. I do think it is good when we see pitchers get called up pretty early and they're at their best, they're at their athletic peaks. Um and they can be monitored and maintained, I think, by the best in the organization, whether that's the doctors, the training staff, the, the coaching staff, of course. Um, I think just sleeping in good beds, sleeping in, in the Ritz versus sleeping in some, some Motel 6. Um, I think we kind of forget all that stuff about the slog of the minor league season and how less comfortable it is than, than playing in the major leagues. I wonder, too, uh, how much the aggression with certain prospects could continue if we continue to if we keep heading towards super conferences on the college side, if players that come out of those conferences will be even ready, even more ready to do what Dylan Cruz has done and basically uh, debut at double A. Jeff Ponce of Baseball America, looking forward to seeing your tweets and your write ups from some New Hampshire Fisher Cats games this weekend. Uh, Thanks for taking the time out this morning. Yeah, absolutely, Blake. Uh, happy to come on. Thanks again.
Jeff Ponce, Baseball America. Uh, make sure you go over there and check out all of Jeff's work, all of their great work. Um, and then, yeah, read up a little bit on why, despite us having a handful of conversations on the show with Jeff and some other prospect people uh, that are optimistic about a lot of names in the Jays system, why they grade out as 25th on Baseball America's latest org rankings. And it's not for lack of interesting names. It's just a lot of interesting names that maybe don't have the ceiling that is present in some other organizations. The Blue Jays have cashed in some of those chips for win now help. Now, some of those prospects have gone on to not do much. Some of them may go on to do something. That's a trade-off you often make if you are in win now mode. A team that has not had to make that trade-off somehow is the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are the hottest team in baseball other than maybe the Seattle Mariners, who trade make win now all-in trades every year for the last decade plus and still have the number three system in baseball. Uh, Craig Goldstein of Baseball Prospectus all over those Dodgers were He's got some Vladimir Guerrero Jr. takes as well because Baseball Prospectus' data uh, sees Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s season a little differently than data from, say, Fangraphs or Baseball Reference. Uh, we'll talk to Craig Goldstein about all of that and kind of whip around the wild card races next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I am Blake Murphy and what's left of Blake Murphy's voice right now. The it, it's nice to be on the Jays right now. I mean, it's nice to be on the Jays in general, but uh, coming from a Raptors background while the Raptors are being accused and sued of stealing trade secrets from the New York Knicks. It is especially uh, fun to be on the Jays side of things instead. Now a team stealing from the Knicks opens itself up to uh, a lot of jokes. Craig Goldstein, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus, joins us now to power rank the three baseball teams you would least like to steal trade secrets from if you were going to go down uh, for inter-organizational subterfuge. Oh, my God. I had not I had not heard this accusation. And when you said Knicks, I honestly almost burst out laughing. Yeah. Um, I don't the the Royals. Yeah, probably the the team that Royals is tanking and rebuilding and still bottom three in system quality. It, it might be the Royals. Uh, Royals. I gotta say, I know they're not bad this year, but you gotta say Angels. I think. Yeah. I think given the way things have gone, you gotta say Angels and uh, Rockies. Yeah, Rockies are always in. If you're power ranking a bottom three of anything, the Rockies are are in that mix. See, the only thing with the Rockies is that uh, I'd imagine you need a Wi-Fi connection to steal like tech, <laughs> technology based trade secrets. They're completely and, impregnable. Yeah, I don't think that everything the Rockies have is written on Post-it notes. Um, by the way, you watched. You were like live tweeting Royals A's yesterday. Are you okay, man? Uh you know, it's been a long week. It's only Tuesday. It's Tuesday. It's been a long week. And <laughs> no, I wouldn't. No, no, I'm not okay. Yeah. I don't think that's a sign of someone who's okay. Uh, <laughs> but it's where I was in the moment, you know? 
I, I understand it. Off day baseball, uh, when, when the marquee teams are off, uh, it leads to weird viewing. The Blue Jays were off. Uh, it gave us an extra day to kind of process what's been going on with them. They took two or three out of Cincinnati. Um, but Mike Petriello of MLB.com had a great piece up uh, on Friday that we all kind of marinated in over the course of the weekend and yesterday on Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s struggles. Now, this is mostly about his whole season, but his struggles have ramped up even further over the last 20, 25 games, uh, sub 700 OPS during that stretch, his worst half season of data since back to uh, his rookie year in 2019. Now, Craig, before we get into some of the potential theories here, there's also uh, an interesting wrinkle where Based on the surface level stats, like an OPS or OPS plus, uh, a WRC plus, if you prefer, uh, baseball prospectuses, DRC plus actually likes what Vlad's done this season a little bit better than some of those other metrics. Uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, I know everyone's just so excited to have another uh, metric with RC plus in the in the title to to dig into here. But um, yeah, we have our our proprietary metric DRC plus deserved runs created and. I think some of the reason it likes what Vlad is doing is that it's not specifically based on what's actually happened. It's based on the processes that lead into what, what happens, right? So it incorporates some stack cast metrics. It's not an expected metric. It's not like uh, XWOBA or you know, XBA or anything like that, but it has elements of that. It incorporates the public aspects of, of various stat cast metrics like uh, exit velocity and launch angle. And so what we really try and do with our deserved metrics, we have, we have them for pitchers as well, uh, is dig into uh, the underlying process of like, is, is this person, does this person deserve a better outcome than the one that they necessarily got? And when I look at Vlad Jr.'s, it, he's actually almost dead on in every single category that we look at. We look at ball in play outs, strikeouts, walks, hit by pitches, reach on errors, single, double, triple homers, right? All of those, he's almost dead on in terms of what he's actually doing and his deserved metrics, except for the big one, home runs. Mm. He says his actual home run rate is 3.4%. We have him at deserved 4.6%. And I know that those aren't necessarily big numbers, but th- that's a huge gap in, in those numbers. Yeah. He'd be at 24 uh, home runs perfect. maybe instead of 18. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. Right. And it's, it's a, it's a really, really big difference. Some of this might be, and I'm, I'm a little bit curious at, if this is true of OPS plus and WRC plus two is that we have new dimensions in uh, the Rogers Center, and I know that Mike addressed Mike's piece was fantastic and really, really thorough. Um, and I, I don't have anything to really shed light that he didn't dig it, uh, get into. He's a you know that was that was a like I said a thorough piece, and it's a this is an enigma of a season to me uh, for Vlad. But I'm kind of curious if the OPS plus numbers and WRC plus, all of which are park adjusted. Um, aren't necessarily reflecting the new reality of this park in its first year, right? These tend to be, when we look at park factors, we tend to look at three-year aspects of of three-year runs for a park uh, in a lot of situations. DRC often uses one year, but we don't even have a full season yet, right? So this is, there are estimations involved when we do our projections for a change in a, in a, uh, when there's changes to the wall uh, placement or height in a park and things like that. And I'm kind of curious if these park-adjusted stats just haven't fully wrapped their minds around how this would play out. And as Mike said in the article, 
people thought it might actually increase offense potentially, and it, it hasn't seemed to do that overall. Um, it certainly seems to be impacting Vlad different than uh, a number of other players, as, as Mike noted in the piece. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, one of the troubles with new park dimensions. And, hey, to complicate matters even more, the park dimensions are changing again next year, not as significantly, but there will be less foul ground uh, down the line. So mm-hmm. that'll that'll be a shift in things ever so slightly as well. Um, we can obviously look at home and road splits for, uh, you know, I think it's easier to, to get a read on this, maybe to look at the pitcher side. The Blue Jays' home ERA is 342. Their away ERA is 387. Uh, so small difference there, even though the staff's been very good regardless. And, and then the other thing that we'll get once we have a couple years worth of park data is you know park effects don't affect every hitter uniformly right like camden if you are a left-handed dead pull hitter camden doesn't affect you the way it affects a guy who hits all his home runs to left center as a right-handed hitter or obviously yankee stadium and fenway play certain ways to certain pitcher to uh to his certain hitter types uh so we'll see more of that as well i think probably the most interesting thing looking in vlad's drc plus which again is the baseball prospectus uh proprietary metric is that not only does it say he should be having a better season than he's having but it also says based on what we'd expect and based on what's deserved he's actually having a better year than last year which none of the surface stats uh back up at all so that that's a that's going to be an interesting one uh to watch I, I wanted craig to ask you about one kind of sub theory within mike's piece and mike and i kicked it around yesterday and kind of agreed there isn't enough public data yet for us to really figure it out but when you see the one element where when he barrels a ball, it is just not going as far as it does for other guys. And we have a good yeah. sample of barrel balls. Now, maybe there's something with swing mechanics or spin on the ball or something like that. Like it seems like maybe there's an unknown unknown in our, in the way we measure batted balls. Do, do you kind of have eyes on that as we move forward league wide? Yeah. I mean, I'd be really I, I thought that was a really interesting aspect of, of his breakdown. You know, it, Vlad is hitting the ball harder this year on average than he was last year by, by about half a mile per hour, but his max exit below is down. And that's kind of uh, playing into, into what, you know, Mike was talking about. I kept thinking, is there something, to, this is, I don't mean to be conspiratorial at all, but like, I kept thinking, is there something different about the balls compared, mm. compared to before? Cause we know compared to 2019, they're different. And I know Mike was roping in, you know, a bunch of data from, from the 2019 season too. And, you know, when he's talking about how much, it, you know, he, he lost, I think tens of feet off of his average distance on these barrels compared to 2019. Well, we know the 2019 ball was juiced, right? So, I, I think that's some of it, but it's definitely not all of it. And it doesn't really com- explain the drop off from last year. So I, I, yeah, I don't have an answer. I know it's unsatisfying that I, I, I feel like it's just like, I guess it's just one of those things, which doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really help, but the, yeah, there might be something in his, in his swing mechanics, maybe in his pure bat speed. I know some of the, you know, Statcast has some of that, uh, it's not all public. I'd be interested to see that, but obviously he's still hitting the ball hard enough to qualify for a barrel. So like you kind of, it, it, it's like Mike's article, you kind of keep thinking like, well, here's a possibility, but actually it doesn't really seem to hold up, you know, the more you dig into it. So we're kind of back at square one with, this is just really weird. 
And I, I don't think that's unsatisfying. I think it's it's good that we all keep searching and can't really find a smoking gun. And look, there are a couple possibilities. One is that this is there is an unknown unknown that we can't measure yet. One is that this is all just noise and he's going to have a, a much better stretch run as things normalize or the least satisfying one, but probably the likeliest one is that a lot of things are just like going a little worse for him. And that is snowballing in the overall results. Uh, my only thought on the ball difference is he didn't homer in a couple series against the Yankees late last year. And we know the Aaron judge balls were super juiced. So uh, maybe, maybe not a piece of, uh, of evidence there. Uh, Craig pivoting off of uh, uh, Vladimir Guerrero jr. And, and just looking at the American league wildcard race in general, Jay's running out of time here a little bit. They're, they're only, you know, they're only a little bit out of a wild card spot, but when we talk about things like Vlad or they're hitting with runners in scoring position, normalizing, you know, we're down to the final 35, 40 games here. The Mariners are suddenly red hot. The Astros and Rangers are in target range for, for the Mariners. Um, this tight, an American league wild card race. Uh, what do you make of it? What do you make? Are the Mariners and, and this hot streak for real? Do, would you still lean toward Jays and Astros? How do you feel about how this is starting to shape up? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting between the Jays, Astros, Rangers, who are, you know, all of a sudden they've lost, what, four in a row. Um, and, and you know, those those four teams are, are really tightly packed. It's not a new observation. But I do think, I, I actually, you mentioned the runners in scoring position thing, and, and the reason I said it might be unsatisfying with Vlad is I think it actually compares to the runners in scoring position thing, which is, Mike has dug into this too, right? I think he did this recently, but like, there's no great explanation for it. It's, it, it's not, it's not random, but it's not a repeatable skill either, right? Hitting with runners in scoring position. And I know he was just looking at something recently on, on line where he said, uh, you know, the Jays have had this struggle all year and then they've been one of, they were one of the better teams doing it of the last three weeks, right. Of hitting with runners in scoring position all of a sudden. And it's like, well, you know, this kind of thing, again, it's not quite random. There's, there's an execution aspect to it. There's a, there's uh, a, an intent from what the batters are trying to do and what they're executing and all that kind of stuff. But it also is uh, somewhat luck to some degree. Right. And I, I think with Vlad, this kind of stuff, the hope is that, Again, not that it's random, but like you're saying that he is as he's doing things seemingly right and that eventually that they will go right uh, in, in terms of uh, the top line outcome for the underlying processes. And I think you have to hope the same thing for the Jays. I think the concern, you know, when I look at this, I was surprised to see in the standings that the Mariners had actually a better run differential now on the season than the Jays, because I know they've won 20 of their last 25, that they've won seven in a row now. But I thought this is, this is like a summer hot streak and they've really kind of been, you know, as the kids say, mid for most of the season. Um, and I, I really expected the Jays to kind of be the better team overall. Now, run differential isn't everything, but I was stunned to see that the Mariners had a better one. And not only that, but they've outscored the Jays offense this year, which, you know, I, again, just a surprise to me when I sat down and looked at it recently. That said, do I think the Mariners are for real? I, I think, you know, I think these teams are, are similarly situated. I think they are real. I do not think 20 of 25 is the real Mariners. Um, and, and I, I have all, I thought the Jays were the better team all year long. I, I thought they'd be doing better in the division, uh, but I still think the Jays are probably the better team overall. If I was 
picking these two teams in in a series, I would pick the Jays. Um, you know, the, the, again, the Astros and the Rangers are going to be part of this conversation. Neither of them are running away with anything either. So I, I think that makes it a little bit more complicated, but also gives, you know, Toronto more options in terms of, of teams to beat to get into. It's not just them versus the Mariners. It's them versus a number of teams, which is a blessing and a curse in, in, in some ways. Yeah, and it's more scoreboards for us to watch, which is nice when we're doing out-of-town scoreboard updates and things like that. Uh, to your point about the Mariners scoring more runs, to, to highlight the, and I'm not saying the runners in scoring position thing is going to continue necessarily, but the Jays have a higher batting average, OBP, and slugging than the Seattle Mariners, and the Mariners have scored 32 <laughs> more runs. The Jays have a significantly better OBP than the Orioles and have homered just as much as the Orioles and have scored 52 fewer runs. Like, this is execution yeah. in big spots uh, matters. A team that is executing in every situation lately is your Los Angeles Dodgers. They are outside of the Seattle Mariners, maybe the hottest team in baseball. Uh, obviously, the big winning streak got stopped, but they got right back to winning now. And they're only, uh, you know, three and a half back of the Braves if we're looking at potential NLCS hosts. Um, the Dodgers going out and acquiring a bunch of bad players at the trade deadline and suddenly becoming really good. Uh, what do we What do we make of that wrinkle, Craig? What's going on with the Dodgers that things are finally clicking into place? Well, I, I think they're a great team to talk about on the heels of the runners and scoring position uh, discussion because they, they are one of the better two-out teams. I don't have the specific split in front of me, but I, I know they're one of the best two-out teams in baseball in terms of scoring runs, in terms of getting guys on base. And again, that's a great, that's a great thing to have all season, but all you need to do is go back and look at last year's Dodgers team in the playoffs to see how quickly that can dry up, right? Their series against San Diego, they didn't get any, they didn't drive guys in in scoring position. They didn't get the two out hits that they needed and they got sent packing really quickly. So all that to say like this stuff can change on a dime. Um, but the, but the Dodgers overall, I mean, it's, it's Jeff Paternostro and I, he's the lead prospect writer at baseball perspectives and, and the co-host of my podcast. He's constantly been saying to me all season, the Dodgers are the most annoying, you know, 97 win in baseball. They're actually tracking a little better than that after this, like hot streak after the trade deadline. It's, it's hard for me to explain. Like they, they acquired, as you said, like the f four of the worst players in baseball. If, if you want to go with Lance Lynn and again, I don't, he's not actually one of the worst players in baseball, but he statistically what he had put out there this season was up there. Uh, Lance Lynn, Ahmed Rosario, Enrique Hernandez, uh, Joe Kelly had a rough season. You can mix Ryan Yarborough in there too. All five of them have been fantastic with the Dodgers. And some of that is, you know, fixing the role that they were in. Ahmed Rosario was playing every day in Cleveland. Uh, he's really only playing against lefties. He's always matched lefties. He's going to be a little bit more useful in that role. Enrique Hernandez, it sounds like they've ironed out his swing. And, you know, Lance Lynn, again, sometimes it's a change of scenery, right? Like sometimes this guy just needs to be in a new environment. Uh, it sounds like a lot of people on the White Sox need to be in a new environment. <laughs> from the stuff. Keaton Middleton, Middleton big, big time, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to dig too much into that, but it seems like it might just be like a new place, new face, kind of, you know, we have a, a better attitude. It's nice to be thrown from a last, not a last place team, but, uh, you know, a, a seller dweller, so to speak, into a uh, into a playoff race. And Lance Lynn, especially, I feel like, has been exactly what this rotation needed because the rotation uh, was in tatters. You had Tony Gonsolin clearly pitching through 
an injury. He's now done for the season in all likelihood. Uh, but Lancelin coming in and giving them six or seven innings every time out there is a, is a huge, huge difference maker for this team. You mentioned the Dodgers execution with two outs. The stat that I was able to bring up quickly is when they have a runner on third and two outs, they have a 920 OPS. That is uh, about 200 <laughs> points better than league average. So that's uh that's a pretty clutch stat there. And, of course, Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman playing like absolute superstars at the top for that team uh, goes a long way as well. When you look at the National League MVP race, Craig, um, I think Acuna is going to be near the top there, but uh, Betts has recently passed him in wins above replacement. It's also a fascinating one where probably four of the top five candidates come from Atlanta and the Dodgers. Maybe someone else sneaks in because they don't have a teammate doing it. Um, what would your theoretical, like who would be the, the NL MVP to you if you had a theoretical ballot right now? I would, I would take Acuna first. Okay. Uh, I, I think it would probably be Acuna Betts Freeman off the top of my head. I, I think you could look at, you know, Matt Olson is like you said. This is you're talking about the Dodgers and and Braves right now. But Matt Olson is absolutely in that mix. Um, I, I I think when you when we use uh, DRC Plus as part of our wins above replacement player formula warp, uh, Ronald Acuna is is a step above everybody else right now uh, on the hitting side. Obviously, Shohei Otani gets gets a little bit different uh, analysis, but. Uh, in the NL, he's a step above Mookie Betts uh, by almost two wins at this point. Ronald, what Ronald Acuna doing uh, in in cutting his strikeout rate to the extent that he has, and just how hard he hits the ball when he puts it in play and that kind of thing. He's he's just uh, leveled up in in a way that is uh, very clearly leading the league for us. But I do think again, you can look at these other models of war and and take Mookie Betts. You can take Freddie Freeman. I do think the fact that there's two of them hitting the top of that lineup, doing that, makes it a little bit easy. I know the whole Atlanta lineup is incredible, but I think it makes it a little easier to to marvel at what Acuna is doing. He's going he's 56 stolen bases alongside his 28 home runs. Uh, it's it's just a remarkable season, and really I. I don't get too fussy about the, the end of season awards. You know, sometimes I, I, you know, I think a guy deserves it more than another guy. But when I look at this stuff, I'm just like, how lucky are we that we get to we, that we get to argue about these incredible seasons? I mean, it feels like we're in something of a golden age of how how many just truly elite players we have to to even have these arguments over. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a blast, man. It's uh, I mean, look, you just laid out uh, the top three in MVP. All all three of those guys, whatever metric you look like, you look at, have already been worth about six wins above replacement, and that is usually enough to get you in the conversation. And we've still got uh, five six weeks of baseball here, uh, Craig. Last one before I let you go: uh, the rate of errors being scored around Major League Baseball <laughs> is the lowest it's ever been. Is this that fielders have continued to get better, or? Is there something underlying here? I know there were a couple plays on the weekend. You didn't love the lack of an error being given. Uh, we saw one in uh, the Toronto Cincinnati series where an error actually was given. I thought for a second they were going to give Ellie De La Cruz an inside the park home run on a play with a comedy of errors. Uh, where do you land on how few errors are being uh, credited or, or blamed, I guess, uh, so far this year? Yeah, I, I, there was a big uh, story from The Athletic from Andy McCullough and Zach Mizell about kind of the, the rate of the error uh, dropping in terms of uh, looking at what the official scores have to deal with in regards to the pitch clock and a number of other things. 
I, I don't have anything kind of conspiratorial about this. I, I don't actually care that much, <laughs> but it, it's hard for me to watch a ball clank off a guy's glove or yesterday Bryce Harper's inside, quote unquote inside the park home run where uh, San Francisco center fielder overruns it, picks it up and drops it twice. And, you know, there's not an error given on the play. I, that's hard for me to you know, when I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh, okay, come on. Like I know my whole life that's been a triple and an error. Right. And in, instead it's, it's listed as an inside the park home run. I don't think it matters at all. Like the run scored, right? Like that's the most important thing in the game. But at the same time, it's just hard to sit there and watch and say like, oh yeah, that was fine. I mean, you know, and they call everything they hate immediately. Freddie Freeman recently had a double taken away from him that the guy camped under, it hit off his glove. And then he ends up going, you know, ends up on second base and they called it a double. They eventually corrected it the next day. I, I am curious if the Harper home run will be corrected at all after the fact, but like, this kind of thing, like, I, I just don't understand what we're doing, right? And I know I sound like an old crank because who cares <laughs> about any of this. But, like, what what is this? I, I don't I don't know, like, why? Why? And, and it just doesn't agree with what you're seeing. The, Bobby Witt Jr. had one last yeah. weekend, I think, that, again, right off the guy's glove. And I understand that there was some effort to it. But, like, if it hits off your glove... <laughs> I think in general, you know, there are some exceptions where I think like it really was extraordinary effort, but these are also major league baseball players, guys. Like they, if they're there, they should, and they got a glove on it. They're going to tell you they should have caught it too. And instead it's, it ends up being, and I think a guy, I think in the, in the, the guy backing up the wit Homer also kind of bobbled the ball. Like, come on, we, we can do better than we don't, we don't need to give these guys home runs. I know that I know confidence helps everybody, but let's be fair to the pitchers too. Let's, Let's give them their due. Let's give them some unearned runs. An unearned run never hurt anybody. You know, the run scores, the team's happy, it, and, and the pitcher's in, in a better place because his ERA isn't hurt. That's, yeah. that's all I'm saying. I agree. That's more That's more democratic, I, I think. It's, uh, it's a better way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And all Freddie Freeman needs is more help totaling doubles. He already has 10 more than the, the second highest guy, who, by the way, is somehow still Matt Chapman in second place uh, with 35 doubles. Really? Yeah, Fre- right. Freeman's got 45 Chapman uh Nate Lowe and uh, Jamer Candelario all have 35. So uh, Freeman lapping everyone. Craig Goldstein, uh, enjoy the Dodgers being back in action today so you don't have to watch any more Royals versus A's baseball. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time out today, buddy. Thanks for having me. Craig Goldstein, editor-in-chief at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, It'll be a lot of fun to keep an eye on that Dodgers team uh, when you're doing, I mean, look, this is the the nice thing about having West Coast teams. And if you're a Blue Jays fan, you're probably more dialed in on the Mariners if they're at home or playing on the West Coast. Uh, but the Dodgers are always good viewing and that NL wildcard race uh, is pretty crazy, crazier even than the American League one. That American League one could be impacted by the Jays' ability to take, I don't know, two of three, maybe even three of three against Baltimore. It doesn't seem likely given what they've done against the Orioles in the past this year. But as uh, Mitch Bannon pointed out on Twitter, the Jays will have a pitching advantage of at least one full run of ERA in each game of this series. Kikuchi Rodriguez, Gosman Flaherty, Barrios Kramer. Is that an accurate depiction of this series and where the Orioles are at? Probably not, but we'll take a break and we'll talk to Melanie Newman of Masson and MOB Network, uh, Orioles reporter and host there when we come back. Melanie Newman next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
DJ's Thought Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is a Dear Tick song called Baltimore Blues. Number one, that is unquestionably what the Toronto Blue Jays have had whenever they've seen the Orioles this year, thanks in large part to Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Melanie Newman, reporter and host at Mass and NMLB Network, joins us now to help us tee up this series. Melanie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. We're doing good. How are you? I'm good. I, I got to ask you about, you know, the biggest Orioles story of the last couple of weeks. Were you aware Kevin Brown had that good a Tom DeLong impression? <laughs> Kevin Brown does the best impressions of literally anybody on the planet that you could ever meet. It's absolutely ridiculous. The cadence, the pitch, the man knows what he's doing, and it's almost a waste of his talents that he's not doing it full-time. Unbelievable. I, I think every pop-punk kid can has a, an effort. You know, we've all tried the Tom DeLong voice, but I'm curious to hear what else is in the, the repertoire now. Um, Melanie, the Orioles come into this series uh, still playing pretty well. We've seen a lot of that this year from the Orioles. Um, you, I, I know you spoke to him immediately after the game on the sideline on the weekend, but Gunnar Henderson having the opportunity to hit for the cycle, legging out a second double instead. Um, fun, fun moment there. Uh, what does that tell you about Gunnar Henderson and what was his explanation on that choice? Yeah, I got a little on my soapbox yesterday because this poor kid has been getting so much grief from the outside <laughs> about how poor it was to miss this chance of history. He still made history by foregoing the single for a double, and he's the first player to have four extra base hits in a game, the youngest since Cal Ripken. Cal was 23, Gunner's 22 years old in 52 days or something like that. And I think there's still so much respect to be had there. It was not Go, it, it would have been a lazy single. Uh, there was no reason for him to not take second base. The ball went all the way out into right field. We know how wide and deep that mm. ballpark plays out in Oakland. And he even said that afterwards. You know, he said if it was going to be a true single, I was going to take it. But I also wasn't going to cheat it either. And I just have so much respect for the fact that this is a hard-nosed kid. Some people were saying, well, you had a double-digit run lead, stop and take the single and take the moment, but that's not how he plays. They they really do play blue-collar, hard-nosed baseball, and it has been so enjoyable to see a whole clubhouse of team first guys. Not not a single one of them puts themselves ahead of that team. And he was in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because if he takes the single, then some people are going to criticize him for, you know, going oh, for yeah. the statistical oddity instead of, uh, you know, and then some people say, well, you took second base, you're running up the score. There's no win in a scenario like that. So do whatever you feel like. Gunnar Henderson. It's also, you've got uh, about a million extra base hits this year. So why not add on uh, one more Melanie in, in seriousness, he has, you know, doubled up on a really strong short 22 day, 2022 debut. He had a, a pretty tough start to this season. I know we heard even someone like Cal Ripken weigh in on, Hey, it could be really difficult to come in, start every day, play third base when, you know, you came up as a shortstop and things like that. Um, what have you made a, of Gunnar Henderson's season overall and how he's settled in here at the top of this lineup? It's, it's hard to say that it's what you expect of him, but knowing his maturity beyond his years, his discipline, um, the fact that he has found outlets to decompress and kind of keep his defense separated from his offense 
it, it almost is what you expect. I mean, this kid knows exactly how to approach the game. There's a reason that he was a high school pick and he gave up the, uh, the chance at college for that. It's because he was ready mentally and emotionally to be in this spot. Now, he came in as the preseason favorite for that AL Rookie of the Year title, and it's easy to see why after the hot start he had to last season. But we also know that most of these guys are human and they're going to get hit with that sophomore slump of the league really sharply adjusting to them and how well can you adjust back? And he finally did. And, you know, there were moments we talked about it with Brandon Hyde that he was pressing at the plate and just trying to make it work. But the defense never faltered because, again, through building his Legos, he found a way to kind of separate those and be okay in his mental space on the defensive side of things. Now, it has been an absolute joy to watch him play at shortstop. He is great at third base, but I've loved the fact that Ramon Urias being healthy, they're letting the gold glover hold it down over there. And Gunner, for the most part, is getting to play a lot at short um, because you just see that natural ability. You see the fact that that's exactly where he grew up. Now, if he gets bigger, maybe it makes more sense to permanently move him over to third base. He can certainly still grow. But right now, really good options for the Orioles on the entire infield. It's just ridiculous. But Gunner is doing what he was basically built to do just through his discipline. Hey, you mentioned, you know, moving guys around to, to make space for him and him playing shortstop means that today Jorge Mateo is on the bench or him playing third base means maybe Ramon Urias is, is on the bench or playing a different position. We've also seen Jordan Westberg, another interesting prospect, kind of run with an everyday job here. That's mostly come at the expense of Adam Frazier, who's transitioned into more of a, hey, I'm, I'm almost 32. I, I'm a vet here. Let me let me be in a bench role. Uh, Adam Frazier has been a bit of a Blue Jays killer two over the years. So I'd imagine we'll see a moment from him this weekend or this week, but Jordan Westberg, his ability to come in and compliment uh, Gunnar Henderson and the other pieces in the infield. What, what has he done that's allowed him to kind of run with a, an everyday role from where he started, which was kind of only playing a couple times a week. Yeah. I mean, for Westberg, this is a kid who never blew up the prospect boards. You know, people had eyes on him, but he wasn't, it's so hard when the bar is set so high with guys like Adley and Gunner and now Jackson Holiday. But Westberg made people notice. And I have so much respect for the fact that that's how he went about his business, making sure that he just kept his head down, his work ethic stayed the same. And I got a chance to talk to him about it this last week, too, because he also, like Gunner, flips between second and third. And you just mentioned getting a lot of time over Adam Frazier right now. And he said he goes out on the field every day with the mentality that he's probably going to move later in the game to second base. That's kind of been his biggest focus. He said in particular working on those shuttle passes from second over to first, but things have looked really smooth for him right now in that aspect. And you also look at the other side of this too, Jordan coming up with Gunner, meaning that whichever side he flips, Gunner is always going to be on one side of him. And I think having that communication, that consistency, and relationship with each other is what makes the flexibility work because they have been familiar with each other for years now. These are guys who have had the same message driven into them their entire minor league career. Um, and, and I think good things are coming ahead, especially now that we're starting to see the bat come around for him. 
So uh, those are some of the infielders. Every Blue Jays fan is waiting for me to bring up Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Last time the Jays (laughs) saw the Orioles, it was a four-game set here in Toronto, and he got 11 hits. He almost single-handedly matched the Blue Jays in hits and RBI over the course of that four-game series, and he has stayed incredibly hot since. He has a 917 OPS in the 15 games since. I believe he's on something like a 25-game on base streak. I, I know he's a guy who hits a little better on the road than at home just because of the the way Camden's lined up there. Um, but Ryan Mountcastle turning his Blue Jay killer magic into everyone killer magic of late. Uh, what has unlocked for, for Ryan Mountcastle that he's not just doing this to the Blue Jays now? Yeah, I mean, we've seen Ryan really connect like this in, in bursts. I would say, you know, a week or two weeks at a time. But what he's doing right now is just so overwhelmingly impressive. And, and again, I know they're not going to want to hear this, but he does have four home runs in 16 appearances against Yusei Kikuchi for tonight. So mm-hmm. there's no doubt that he's going to be facing off with him here. Um, he's just, this is his natural ability. And I think the toughest part for him was he had raw talent growing up through the minor league system. This was a kid who had just came so easily to him to read his zone, to connect, to make sure that he's getting on the right side of the barrel. Um, And and once he realized that he had to learn how to learn the game, it's just gone to another level. Now, the tough thing was for him, he had that bout with vertigo, which is why it might not have been as impressive in the first half. And we asked, you know, at one point his swings did not look like him. Um, And he said, simply put, there were three baseballs coming to the plate at the same time. Mm. So, you know, you have just as much luck with that as, as I could. And, and it makes sense now that that re- issue has been resolved, that he's doing what he's doing. It's just on a, a different plane. And, and we've tried to get his secrets unlocked about facing Toronto. And he simply says he can't talk about it because it's going so well. And maybe if it stops going so well, then he'll talk about it. Whatever it is, though, to put it together in 26 consecutive days, he's been one of the best hitters since the all-star break has happened. Um, it has been an absolute revelation and it just keeps getting better for him. I mean, this is a guy who really had to kind of find himself. They tried him in the outfield. They're moving around the infield. Now that he knows he's a first base DH, the, the bat's fully locked in. Yeah. Well, let's hope that this, I, I, I'm going to frame this differently than I was going to Melanie. I hope you get to talk to him about his ability to hit against the Jays on Thursday or Friday, because that would then mean he didn't have another uh, massive series against them. Last time Toronto saw Baltimore, Cedric Mullins was not in the lineup. He was on the IL with an adductor issue. Uh, he's been back for a handful of games here, not hitting particularly well, a 600 OPS since he came back. Um, is, is he still feeling the effects from that injury a little bit? Is this just uh, normal up and down? Obviously, it's Cedric Mullins, so the, the defensive boost is there, uh, but the bat hasn't quite been there yet. Yeah, he's had a couple of good games, and I, I think it was unfortunate that the bat started to come around his first time back off of the injured list and right away got a, a little banged up again. And so they're they're taking it easy with him at this point. It's arguable that he'll have a day off a little more often than what we were seeing in the first half, just because they do want to manage that. I mean, this is a guy who including his rehab assignments before joining the Orioles and then into that first week with the Orioles robbed four different home runs 
within a seven-day span, which I, I don't care what ballpark you're playing at. Um, it's just ridiculous. And we look at all the soft tissues that go into that, especially lower body. You need him fully healthy if he is going to make plays like that. Um, so I think for him, the bat is going to be there. It's it's really interesting right now to see how well Adley Rutschman has adapted to being that leadoff hitter. And it's given Cedric ultimately that protection to kind of be moved around in the middle of the lineup as Hyde sees fit as he's getting his feel back. The eye is still there. You know, the walks are coming in. That's never really been the issue for him. It's just kind of that matter of reps. And again, he's already starting to show some pops here and there that that's getting back in sync as well. So on the other side of things, uh, we'll have a starting pitching a series of starting pitching matchups where just based on the surface level stats, the Blue Jays would appear to have an edge. You say Kikuchi has been very good. Kevin Gosman is Kevin Gosman. Jose Brios having another uh, terrific season. Grayson Rodriguez, though, has been a lot better than his 544 ERA might suggest. Over his last five starts, he's got a 235 ERA, a whip below one. Even against the Blue Jays last time out, most of the runs he was charged with came in after he left the game. They were inherited runners uh, that came around. Um, I I know there's maybe an eye on Grayson Rodriguez's innings load down the stretch here. Um, Has he, though, been able to pitch his way into a trust level where you think he could potentially start playoff games for this team? Uh, Your guess is as good as mine right now, because Uh, this has been the biggest debate so far. The Orioles are already on a six man rotation that has been absolutely stellar. Cole Irvin has come back a different man. Grayson Rodriguez, you just mentioned it. The ERA is deceiving. And that really comes down to, he had 10 starts before he was sent down. Five of those were stellar. Five of those were not. And the five that were not were bad enough to inflate that ERA. Otherwise, you're looking at a sub four, um, which would be on par with what you expected from having that top pitching prospect in Rodriguez. The confidence is way up. Uh, The stuff is nasty. I mean, we're talking 98-99 in the fifth and sixth inning and and just a whole new person. Um, Where I don't want to answer that question yet is the fact that even in a six-man They have John Means, who's just completed his fourth rehab appearance in the minor leagues. Uh, Everybody knows he had the the no-hitter for the Orioles. He was kind of that stalwart, big lefty for them. Uh, A chance for him to come back in, although there's been some suggestions that he may also be starting in the bullpen and working his way out from there, just kind of a natural progression. You also have Tyler Wells, who has been almost unhuman before he got a little banged up. He's down in AA right now as well working through some rehab appearances. So you're, you're now talking about potentially eight different starters um, and, and where they fit and how they fit, who's in the bullpen is a job I certainly don't <laughs> want to have. Um, I, I do know this, though, for, for manager Brandon Hyde, it is such a step forward to have a bounty of guys to choose from at every position. We talked to him about this last week of having at least two league average, if not better, options everywhere you look around the diamond, and that includes your rotation. And um, it's a bridge. Apparently, they're going to be crossing as soon as these two uh, lefties and righties come back up. Well, Melanie, to keep it Baltimore, I'll quote Marlo Stanfield from The Wire. That sounds like one of them good problems uh, for the Orioles to be dealing with here. I guess the only the only starter who really hasn't blown the doors off over the last little bit is Jack Flaherty, who they picked up at the all star or at the trade deadline. He had a very good start against Toronto uh, here in Toronto right after the trade deadline. But uh, an iffy one against Houston and a really rough one against San Diego. Is Flaherty still trying to kind of find his footing w- within this Orioles? 
rotation? I, I think that's with anybody who gets traded, especially a guy who has not known a different organization his entire 